You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Everybody, you're listening to or watching Wake Up Call the Podcast, and I'm your host, Christina Previtt. Joining me today is Susan Guthrie, another femme squire. Susan is nationally recognized as one of the top family law and mediation attorneys in the country. Susan provides online divorce mediation and legal coaching services to clients around the world, and she's also the host of the Divorce and Beyond Podcast with Susan Guthrie. Thank you for joining me today, Susan. No, thank you for having me, Christina. This is uh, this is quite fun for me to be on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. I was just going to say that. Great minds. Yeah. So how long have you had your podcast? Uh, this podcast, Divorce and Beyond, um, started in December of 2019. So just over a year. But I had a podcast before that um, for a year and a half. So two and a half years so far. I saw that. And that one had something like 3 million downloads, right? Yeah. Yeah. It really uh, kind of skyrocketed very quickly. How the heck did you do that, Susan? knows, right? You know, I will say two and a half years ago, there were not as many divorce related podcasts as there are now. Podcasting has kind of exploded in the last two and a half years. Um, so we we kind of were on the, the, the leading wave with that one. It really has exploded. And I think if people like Joe Rogan, who's like the podcaster, yeah. and he started doing this 10 years ago. Yep. I don't think I even knew what a podcast was 10 years ago. Definitely not. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a rel. I mean, it's still a relatively new medium, but especially because of COVID um, where people are looking for entertainment and information, it's really become sort of the, the premier outlet. So I think when I started two and a half years ago, there were about 500,000 podcasts on iTunes and now there's well over a million active. Well, I, I think partly the reason for that is because it's really accessible for everyone. Anybody can set up a podcast. You don't need a lot of money. No, you know, it's not like you have to have access to a professional studio or buy airtime, which can actually be very expensive because I did that. I had a radio show and I really loved it. It was fun, but it was costly. Yeah. I mean, you can, and you can start, I mean, I'm, I've got two podcasts right now. I'm thinking of starting a third. I have a membership podcast about to start and it really doesn't cost you that much more to do them incrementally and more of them as well. So um, once you get it down, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. Yeah. So what I really love about your story though, and, and um, a lot of my colleagues will love is that you are what I like to call a reformed lawyer. So, you know, you got out of the actual practice of law. So I, there's so many things I want to know about you that I have to squeeze in our hour, but why don't we go back to, you know, why you became a lawyer in the first place? Was that something you always wanted to do from the time you were a kid? Yeah, you know, no, (laughs) I had no plans to be a lawyer and actually had no plans to go to law school until I was about 
in my, I think it was like my second year of law school at, or um, undergrad. And what happened is in my first year of undergrad, I was in a pretty bad car accident. And as I recovered from that, it took about nine months to get back you know, to, to normal um, from that accident. And then I went through litigation, right? My very first brush with the legal system and lawyers and all of that. And um, I found the process intimidating and interesting, right? There was like all these different aspects of it that I found to be um, compelling, even though it was a personal injury case and nothing that I ended up ever doing. But um, then I, you know, in that second year of college or the third year of college, they have you do that vocational testing. Yeah. And when I did the vocational testing, it came back as you should be a lawyer and absolutely nothing else fits your, your, you know, skill set. It was like, be a lawyer or you're, you've got nothing, girl. So I was kind of like, Hey, that's interesting. That was the first time you had ever really thought about it. Yeah, I never, um, I, I honestly don't know that I ever had um, a huge, I had four majors in college. I, my interests were like, I was a history major, an archaeology major, a psychology major, and an English major. So I just had broad interests and loved to learn, but hadn't really, I probably thought I was going to be a teacher or a professor or something in that field. And it wasn't until I had my own brush with the law and, and then that there's really something about that vocational test that really made me stop and think like, what is it about me that they're saying would translate well into being a lawyer? Um, and that was kind of the career path. It wasn't anything. And I certainly never had an intention of being a family law attorney, even when I went to law school. Yeah. We'll have to talk more about that. I'm a little interested in the accident though, because I, I've observed people over the course of my life. They're usually older, but Sometimes they have this aha moment and where they just think, I don't like my life. I'm not happy with where things are. And I end up seeing them because they decide they want to get a divorce. But very often it's because they had some kind of near-death experience like that where they almost died. They were in a terrible accident. They should have died or they, they survived some horrible disease that they shouldn't have. And they just really start thinking about their lives. Did, was that something that you experienced or? It was, you know, so my car accident was a drunk driver ran a red light and our car T-boned it. And I was not at 18 at that age, I was not wearing a seatbelt. So I went through the windshield um, with my face. And so although I was not um, injured in a life-threatening way, my face was, I broke almost, you know, everything in my face. The skin was scraped off my face. I had nine different surgeries to put a face back on me. Um, and, you know, when you're an 18-year-old female and your appearance is, you know, just it was a really long year for me to get back. And then when I went through the legal system, those injuries, because they weren't life-threatening, were discounted in the personal injury process. It was like, well, you look good now. Um, you probably, I had one lawyer tell me I looked better now. And so that I should be grateful, you know, that that I got all that free plastic surgery or something of that nature, right? It was, it was almost that condescending and and to me very heartless. Yeah. Um, so my brush with the law when I say I was in that personal injury suit, um, it was not a positive experience at all. 
Um, it ended up paying for my law school. So in some ways, I guess that, or contributing to the cost of law school. So in some ways that had a, a benefit to it, but it was really more the, I can do that better. I, I can make that experience better for people. That is that is not how this should be. And people should be more understanding of you know trauma and and the experience of what had happened for me. And then I was in a plane crash in my third year of college. So I kind of had a funny college. Wow. Yeah, I always say I'm the, I'm the person to fly with everyone. I've already been through the hard landing. Um, You're like a cat. You have yeah. nine lives. So it was, you know, those two experiences, because then, of course, there was litigation involved in that. And so I, my second lawsuit was that I was involved in was a part of my college experience as well. And that by that time, I had already started thinking about going to law school. So by the time I was in my senior year of college, uh, I knew I was going to be going to law school uh, I didn't know what I was going to do as a lawyer. I thought I was going to be a business attorney, you know, I, I, and I did. I worked on Wall Street for a whopping nine months after I got out of law school and realized I hated that. <laughs> uh, you have but, to back up a little, though. I we, we can't just leave the plane crash on the table like that. I mean, how many people have been in a plane crash and lived to tell about it? Yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, it was on top of the car accident. It was an experience, I, I will tell you. Was it a commercial flight? Yeah, yeah, it was a Northwest Airlines flight, and I was on um, my way down to Fort Lauderdale for spring break with all my friends. I had a broken leg, so I was in a cast all the way up to my hip, and our plane's landing gear did not lock into place when we got to Fort Lauderdale. Um, and of course, this is long before cell phones and all those things. So we went out and circled to use up our fuel. We circled around. The, out over the water for like an hour and a half to to eliminate as much fuel out of the fuel tanks as possible. Meanwhile, for that hour and a half, people are crying. They're writing letters to their loved ones. People are praying. Um, and then we went down and, you know, the plane it didn't flip over, but we did go down on one side and then the wing broke off and there was smoke. And um, it was a very hard, they called it a hard landing, not a plane crash um, in the mm. airplane vernacular. Well, plastic surgeons don't say pain, they say discomfort. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's uh, incredible. Yeah, I, that was quite, and I was the last person off the plane because I couldn't move because I was, you know, I had that hip cast. So the cast up to my hip, plus a gentleman next to me sort of was on top of, you know, had fallen on me. So it was a long, that was another like lovely experience. That, that's really amazing because even those two experiences alone, uh, I mean, they're traumatic and most people haven't experienced something like that. And you did very young and rather close together. But I have to ask you when you're on the plane and they, they obviously realized that, um, well, you said the, the landing gear didn't work, so they had to have a plan B. And they announced this, I imagine, right? So everybody knows what's going on. What was going on in your head? You you think you're so this is right after I'm I'm a lot older than you are, and, and any of your listeners who may remember, this is a few years after a plane had taken off from Detroit Metro, which was the airport that I was coming from, and um, had crashed on takeoff over the highway and everyone had died. And that had just happened about two years earlier, I think it was while I was in college. 
So that was very much, I think, in everyone's mind on that plane because we were mostly all from the Detroit area. So yeah, you thought you were, you, you know, you weren't, you weren't going to be there um, anymore. Um, it's a very surreal place to be in, especially when it goes on for such a long period, right? You're there for an hour and a half and they tell you we're circling to use up our fuel. Everything's going to be fine. You can see all the flashing lights and they're clearing all the runways and they're shooting that foam all over in case there's fire. So it, it was, you know, really quite a, uh, it, it's an hour and a half. You don't forget. And that must have felt like the longest hour and a half of your life. It probably felt like eight hours. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, and, and, and again, this was long before cell phones or any way to contact your family. So you're literally taking like any piece of paper you can find, or they were passing out um, cocktail napkins and we were sharing pens and people were like trying to write notes to family members and then put them somewhere where they'd be safe in case there was a fire or something they wanted them to survive the crash. I mean, those were the thoughts that go into your, into your mind in those circumstances. How do I make this survive me? Yeah. Do you, did you think that you were going to die or did you, were you just hopeful that we, you were all going to survive this? You know, I think it's my experience of it was it's very difficult to contemplate. You're not living right. You you're like, somehow I'm going to put my head between my knees and wrap my arms around my legs like they tell you to do. And I'm going to get through this thing. Um, but then there's also that memory of the plane that had just crashed. And, you know, you're way up. I mean, you're looking down at the ground that you know you're going to have to go toward at some point. And you see all the little flashing lights and, and all the things happening you can't really contemplate you're not being there, but you realize the end result of this might be in an instant, you're not there anymore. It's just a natural reaction as a human being to want to survive and think yeah. that you will survive. And how do you, I mean, if you really think it, you just, how do you contemplate as an existing being not existing anymore? There's just, it's an existential question that there's no answer to really. <laughs> It's pretty, yeah. you know, I, but I'm not going to figure it out today. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. But it was, I, I mean, it definitely, you know, if you talk to my mother now, she says between the car accident and then the plane crash just two years later, the person that I was before those two things happened and the person that I became after in, I've just, I changed, you know, different aspects of my life were different and, and my outlook on life was different. Well, that actually was the next question for you is how do you think that those experiences shaped you? You know, it made me it, in a lot of different, I mean, I would say in good ways and in bad ways, um, you know, every experience shapes us. Um, it made me definitely much more appreciative of being alive and being in every day. Um, but in other ways, you know, very frankly, having my face taken away made me very conscious of my appearance in ways that I think any teenage girl is probably conscious of her appearance, any teenager. But it made me almost like obsessive about it because 
you know, I, I just so many different things went on and I had so many different surgeries to put things back in place, but it makes you focus on appearance in a way that I didn't think in the end is probably as healthy as it should be. Well, you're absolutely beautiful for anybody who's listening and can't see you. You're gorgeous. You would never know that any of this had happened. Yeah, I, I was, I was very lucky. My mom, my mother is a nurse. Um, and worked in one of the local hospitals. So when the EMS um, people picked me up at the side of the accident, I told them my mom's name and they called her and she called a plastic surgeon and a couple other doctors that she knew. So they were there at one o'clock in the morning starting to pick the glass out of my face and and everything. Um, so I was just lucky, you know, I was lucky to have a lot of help. So those are serious traumas. I, I've been learning a lot about trauma recently um, about how it can kind of live in your cells, you know, long after the trauma actually happens. And I'm wondering if, you know, what did you do in your lifetime to deal with those experiences? Cause I know they were a long time ago now, but they can oh, no, still you're, affect yeah. you. You're a hundred percent. I mean, it's essentially comes out in a PTSD disorder, um, and you know, I was diagnosed back several years ago with elements of PTSD from those experiences, which I don't think is, you know, uh, unreasonable or unexpected. Um, but learning to deal with it, uh, is something that you then have to, um, I don't know, you have to learn and, and accept that that's now become a part of your DNA. I, I love that you just said it lives in your cells that is, I mean, it comes out still in, in my everyday life today. Sometimes when I see a, like the car will slip on the ice or something like that. There's something about car or I hear a car accident. I live in a city in Chicago. So I hear car accidents, you know, you hear them, that crash bang. Um, I will go into almost like a, you know, a shivering mess at that sound. Um, and it's almost like I've gone back to being 18 years old for a moment or 19 years old. Um, and same thing with planes. Sometimes I'm absolutely fl fine flying on a plane, but don't put me in turbulence because, you know, the minute that bump happens, yeah. I start crying and I can't help it. I mean, it just, I burst into tears. I've had flight attendants completely freak out because I, it's like, I'm having, you know, a little bit of a breakdown. Um, and, and they're just things I can't help. You know, I can't do anything about, they just happen. So there's, you know, those are the things, one of the things I've had to learn to do is become um, accepting of myself and forgive myself for dealing with trauma in those ways that it still comes out. And that 30 years later, it's not something that's so far long ago that it doesn't affect me or I haven't been able to close the door on it. I just have to except that that's an experience of me that is still in my cells and is going to come out every once in a while. And it's certainly not a flaw or a fault, right? Yeah. You know, I think we're very conscious and maybe this goes back to that appearance thing. There's that concern about what other people think of you. Mm -hmm, and yeah. when you're in the middle of an airplane bawling in a almost, you know, and having a hard time, you know, hyperventilating or breathing when the plane just went like this and your husband's going, calm down. It's all going to be okay. And he's fine. He, I mean, he's really great about it, but you get people turning in their seat and looking at you like you're disruptive and what's wrong with her. And yeah. Like, isn't she overreacting a little to the turbulence, but they don't know, they don't know right. you or what you've been through. 
Right. Well, and so there's a lesson for, and so I will tell you that has made me much more accepting and trying to be much more accepting of other people because we don't know what anyone has been through. And that's something that as a divorce attorney, I think actually has helped me um, with clients and with uh, the other side, you know, their spouse who maybe be, is behaving in an, a really unreasonable or unattractive way. Um, but we don't know what people have been through or what their experiences are. And I think we all need a little compassion. Yeah. I think I forget that sometimes, you know, we go through life and we kind of, especially in this Northeast area, um, and you live in a city, so you get it. People are just in a hurry and we're kind of, um, you know, we have tunnel vision. We're just rushing off to the next thing that we have to do. And I think we, we can kind of see the other people as just getting in our way. Right. Yeah. And, um, That's what I felt when I lived in New York, right. I'm like, I'm walking. And if you're not walking as fast as I'm walking, move. You know? Yes. And it's always the tourists that aren't walking very fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, I think, um, I, I'm certainly guilty of that where if I feel like someone's not moving fast enough or, or whatever, they're not moving along according to my agenda, I can get frustrated with them, but you're right. We don't know what they've been through, but I can remember times where I was having a bad day or, or experiencing something and I was out of sorts and, and maybe someone treated me that way. Like I'm, you know, you're in my way, Christina, you need to get out of the way. And I would feel so grateful for the, for someone that was kind. Right. right. So thanks for the reminder, Susan. Yeah. See, you know, we, and, 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 you know, I know it's a little trite, but if we take the negatives that happen to us in our lives and, and, you know, use them as lessons or, or something to help us to, to try and to tap into gratitude. And I mean, there's a lot in, I just told you, I've survived a, a terrible car crash and plane crash. I'm still here. I'm still functioning. So I have a lot to be grateful for if I flip that around. So let's just get this out of the way. Were there any other crashes or anything like that in your life that we should talk about? I think so. You know, I got them all done in college. Okay. All My right. Good. Parents. Because sometimes I'll interview people and then later I'll find out that they, there was this monumental thing that happened to them. And I'll think, how the heck did we not talk about that? I must not have been doing my job as an interviewer that I didn't find out about that. Well, I don't think anything else happened, but it's actually, I have to, to give you credit. I don't think I've ever talked about the plane crash or the car crash on a podcast interview or hardly ever. Um, they happened a long time ago. So, well, thank you. I, I, I'm getting better at it then I guess. Um, but that's funny that you, something you said struck me. It happened so long ago, but they were huge. Those, those are huge events. And I think when someone, whatever someone has actually been through in their own lives, I think they have a tendency to kind of minimize it because, because you went through it. Right. Yeah. But to everybody else, it's like, oh my God, what? You were in a car crash and then a plane crash. Who lives to talk about that? Yeah. Well, I guess it's the, I don't want to be a drama queen syndrome, right? You downplay and they, and they did happen. So they just sort of have now become a part of my 50 plus years of life journey on this, uh, on this planet. So, um, and they yeah. were long ago. And oh, by the way, I have to say, I'm not that much younger than you, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bravo to you. You look a lot younger than I do. <laughs> I, I attribute that to, uh, Dr. Asadi. 
<laughs> my plastic well, surgeon. Right. <laughs> so, um, okay. So we're really going off on a tangent here. Um, okay. So you, um, actually, I do want to ask you one question about the, the trauma. Have you heard of, um, it's a sort of a movement now to use psychedelics medicinally as yeah, like LSD or treatment. Yeah. Like MDMA, um, ayahuasca. I think those I are the, I mean, I have not while I was in treatment for PTSD, but I have heard of that and actually had one client, um, who had PTSD from desert storm, um, who was treating, um, in a program at one of the hospitals in New York, um, with psychedelics, but I don't know much uh, about it. It was, um, that was probably 10 years ago. Yeah. It, it is something they use a lot for people that have PTSD that have been in the military, but they're finding that it's effective with all different types of PTSD. Um, so I just wondered if you were, um, attuned to that. Cause I know they've been doing it a long time, but it's getting a lot more attention now. So, um, sort of interested in it. Yeah. I did the, um, EMDR, the tapping. Oh, the, really? That EMDR therapy has, was quite effective for me and mindfulness. I know we all get maybe a little tired of talking about mindfulness, but it has been, um, a mainstay and a, a a lifeline for me when I, you know, if I'm sitting there on that airplane, having a bit of a breakdown because we just went through turbulence, um, mindfulness is pretty much the only thing I've got available to me there. To yeah. Me. I mean, you could use the word mindfulness. I think a lot of it's being present, having awareness of yourself and how you're feeling. And, um, something else that you said, it reminded me of something I heard on a podcast actually today by a doctor. I don't, do you listen to the drive by Peter Atia? No, no. Well, he's a doctor and he was talking to someone about a trauma that this person had experienced when he was very young. And, and they were observing that a lot of times when we go through a trauma, our reaction is, you know what, just get over it. Don't act like a baby. Don't be a drama queen. You know, you don't need attention and just, just move on. Right. But if you knew someone else who had experienced that very thing, you would be more compassionate towards them. Yeah. So, you know, so that might be something um, for you to think about is, you know, it's, it's, even though it's something that happened a long time ago, it's, if you met someone who'd had something similar, you probably would have a different reaction. Well, I think that's, you know, isn't it Brene Brown, I think who said, you know, speak to yourself, like you would speak to someone else. You know, it, it's one of those, I would I would want to show compassion to others. And it was hard for me. Um, it took years of therapy for me to start showing some compassion for myself, um, having gone through those experiences, because what you just said really resonates with the, just get over it. You lived, you look fine. You, I mean, it's sort of other people's viewpoint at times. It's also with my internal dialogue is why yeah. are you so upset about this? Yeah. Just brush yourself off and move on with life. I mean, I do think, you know, that has its place, you know, you don't want to be crippled forever because of it, but choices, right. You gotta get, gotta keep going. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, be kind to yourself too. I, I, sometimes I'll hear myself in my own head saying, giving myself some criticism, like, like, you know, Oh, you need to lose weight or, I don't even know, like you should have done better in court. You shouldn't have done that to that person. That wasn't very nice. And 
I've started when I catch myself doing that, I will think to myself, would you ever say that to your seven-year-old goddaughter? And I wouldn't, I would never. So I'm learning that way to be kinder to myself. Yeah, I think we we are the, our harshest critics. And I do think to generalize a tiny bit, I do think women are harder on them, themselves in many ways um, and harder on each other. Sorry yeah. to say that ladies, but we are not always kind to each other. Um, it, more so, I, I don't know if it's, maybe I just think of it that way because I am a woman, but um, it, it was it was really hard for me to move into a space where I could be understanding of my feelings and my my you know we're not perfect um i have a huge perfection oh that's the other thing so if you talk to my mother she <laughs> i became a huge perfectionist after those two accidents um and if you talk to a psychologist they're going to tell you it's a control thing right i was totally out of control in that i wasn't driving the car in the first one and i wasn't flying the plane in the second one um and so i didn't have control over these life-threatening situations and so I became very much, which had a lot to do with why I became a litigator, I think, um, and why I was good at it is because I became quite a, you know, planner, uh, lawyers that tend to be uh, over preparers and perfectionists. And that's, you know, that was my niche. That's where I, I excelled. Yeah, there's a lot of detail that you have to um pay attention to. So yeah. at this point, you're you've already experienced two traumas. So you just keep on rolling and then you go to law school. You hadn't even started law school at that point, right? Right. No, I was uh, in my last year of college at that point. Did you take a break at all? No, I, uh, no. And that was the mistake. Um, I, when I was in the car accident, as I said, it took like nine months and several surgeries to get put back together, so to speak. Um, and I just kept going to school, um, but I was missing classes and I was all that. So I went from actually Dean's list to academic probation in the space of two, um, two semesters, which was a difficult experience. I was also not, you know, I was just one of those students that had school was one of those things that my brain works the way that schooling works. You know, I could take standardized testing and do well. That's just some people's brains work that way. And for the first time in my life, I was having a hard time in school, which was difficult for me, but it was more um, just, I, sh I should have been more compassionate to myself and given myself some space to physically heal um, as opposed to powering on. So I learned a lesson from that as well. Why did you decide to power on? Did it occur to you to take time off? It, it, it was suggested to me um, and it was something that I just didn't even contemplate. I was just like, you know, I'm stronger than that. I can do it all. Um, and part of it was, I think I was still in shock. Um, and, and then I just underestimated the repetitive trauma of going through surgery after surgery. Um, and, you know, no one knew at that time all the different things I was going to have to do to get back to looking like a normal person. And I didn't really understand the trauma of going out in the world with a face that was broken and, and not right. Um, which is, you know, each time I went for a surgery, it was getting a little bit better. 
but it was still, you know, my nose was over here and my cheekbones were crushed and one of my eyes, the eye socket had been shattered. And so I did, I, it wasn't just that I looked um, unattractive, it was that I looked strange. I looked, you know, malformed in my face and that was a, not something. Yeah. I mean, I, I think as women, we can certainly, we can understand because I think there's obviously different pressures on women to be attractive and, you know, feminine and, and all of that, which we could talk about for another hour and another show. But, um, yeah, especially at such a young age too, to have to deal with that. Well, I think any age that would be hard as a woman, but did you have a boyfriend at the time? I did. I did. It was the same boyfriend I'd had in my last year of high school. And then he happened to go to Michigan as well. And, um, so that was, that was probably another reason I didn't want to be back at home. I wanted to be on campus in Ann Arbor. Um, I had friends. I wanted to be with my friends. I mean, when you're 18 and 19 years old, it's not your family that you're bonded with. It's your friends and your social group. Uh, so that probably all had a lot to do with why I decided to stay in school. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have my my adult 50 some odd year old brain that would have said you moron go like, you know, give yourself a chance to recover. It was my 18, 19 year old brain that was like, you can do this. You're indestructible. You're, you know, yeah. Well, I could imagine myself too being like, well, what are you going to do? Sit around the house? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Am I going to go back to my waitressing job or that I had done through high school or, you know, what was going to happen? So, yeah. Um, you know, and in the end, it all it all worked out well. So I, I got back on top of my studies, but that was a rough year. It's a hard way to start your first year. Of yeah, I have to ask you too. My lawyer brain is working because we can't shut that off, right? No. Were you already done with the litigation for the car accident when the plane crash happened? Yes. Okay, because my I was going to ask you, did they try to blame some of your inj- injuries on that? <laughs> No, um, but it was uh, because it hadn't happened yet. But yes, it was. But as I said, they really poo pooed my injuries, even though it was, you know, nine months of recovery and there were 11 surgeries of varying, you know, things. It was all, well, you look great now. What's the problem? I mean, I, I heard it so many times. Were these all uh, men? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. My lawyer was a man. The other side, the insurance company's lawyer was a man, you know, and, and, but it wasn't, it was a, um, you know, I also came from a family. I have a Scottish background. I don't know if you know the, the Celts or the Scots, but they're very much like, actually my fam, my husband's family's motto is we learn to suffer. And that's just like, you know, you'll never find more pragmatic and just buck up and get it done people than the Scottish. So yeah. my dad was kind of like, you're fine. Take it off, get over it, you know, drama queen. So, well, maybe, maybe he needed you to do that so he could feel better. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's get back to your legal career, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you go on to law school. I can't imagine you weren't every fact pattern you'd see, especially in torts. I can't believe you weren't analyzing these other situations. You must have been. It was, you know, and I will say torts was easy for me because by that time I'd been through two personal injury lawsuits myself. 
um, and was actually still in one. The, the airline litigation went on for a while. Um, so, you know, I always tell people law school isn't as much about learning the law as it is learning how to think like a lawyer. And I do think I had a head start on that aspect of it because I went into law school, you know, having had now two experiences of going through it as a, as a participant anyway. Yeah, it, it sounds like you did. And the first year is always the the hardest, I think, because be, for that very reason, what you said, you're, you're, they're teaching you to think like a lawyer and it's really transformative because once you do think that way, you can't unthink that way. You still do it, right? Someone tells you a story at a cocktail party and you're immediately in our minds, we're saying, well, who could be held liable for that? Where are the deep pockets? You know, yes. Who's that? Yeah. And I, and forget about watching television. It's impossible. Um, my, and my boyfriend hates having an argument with me. It's like, why do you have to get all lawyer on me? Just my husband will say, do not cross examine me. (laughs) Even my stepkids they are like, Whoa, here comes the lawyer stepmom. Yeah. Yeah. You can't help that. So well, your first year maybe then was a little easier for you than probably the other students. Yeah, I mean, I actually enjoyed the first year of law school. Um, I liked the the I liked the the thought process of it. I liked the um, that that it was so such a mental exercise um, every day. Uh, and I like to read, so I had a, a step ahead in that. As you know, I mean, we go into law school the very first day. You've probably been assigned 300 pages of reading. So yeah, um, I like, yeah, not easy reading too. I mean, you have to analyze all of it too. So, so then what were you thinking you wanted to do? You said business law. Yep. Why would, why that? Well, I thought it would be interesting. I had a lot of friends from undergrad who had gone on to Wall Street um, and were working in Manhattan. I will say, you know, being a kid from Michigan, I had grown up first in California, but we moved to Michigan when I was about 12. Um, And who, so basically had always lived in my memory in the Midwest. Uh, The lure of Manhattan was huge for me. Um, and so it became my goal to work on Wall Street when I got out of law school. It just was the thing. It felt like the right thing for me. Um, and actually, I did my last year of law school at Brooklyn Law so that I could take an internship on Wall Street um, at a firm. And, um, and I liked the internship. But the minute I graduated and moved into a, a position with that, um, with that firm, and as I was taking the bar and even nine months after that, uh, they basically sit you in a cubicle, plop down contracts that are like, you know, six inches thick, and you live there. You know, you keep mm. a suit on the back of the door and you shower at the gym that's on the main floor of the building or whatever. And I hated it. I just, yeah, what it. kind of life is that? It was awful. It was awful. I'm surprised you lasted nine months. It went well. I will. So there were a couple of positives. The investment bank I was working for opened an office in London, and I got to go live there for a month. And then they opened an office in Paris, and I got to go live there for two months. That's so that, cool. It was very cool. Except I was still working in a little cubicle. It just happened to be in the center of Paris or the center of London, um, and I was still reading big long contracts. You know, highlighting the SEC provisions. Uh, you know. And you were working long hours, right? Yeah, 
18 hour days, that type of thing. So when did you get to have fun in Paris? Your business, your fun was going out for business. This was an investment bank. Part of the job was entertaining. Um, So yes, you got to go on the the company dime out for business, but it was always business. Um, And that was only on rare occasions because usually we little, you know, flunkies were the ones who were still back in the office doing the work. Yeah. And did you find that you were a minority as a woman on Wall Street? Oh, yeah. I mean, there were only a couple of other women um, who were in our firm. The firm that I was in was a bunch of guys who had broken off from Drexel. And this is, you know, you got to remember, I graduated from law school in 90. So this is that, you know, Wolf of Wall Street era, right? The guys are like going to scores and they're, you know, drinking, um, you know, $500 and $1,000 bottles of champagne and living that ridiculous, you know, life that you see in the movies now, but that was actually going on back then. Um, They weren't getting sexual harassment training. They were definitely (laughs) not getting, yeah, the whole Me Too movement uh, for me came along way too late. So, (laughs) Oh, I bet you have some stories there. (laughs) Who was alive in the nineties and working on Wall Street has stories. So Did you feel like that was just, it's just part of the culture. It was just something you had to tolerate at the time. Absolutely. If you wanted to work in that atmosphere, that was just a part of it. I mean, that was like, it it was just a part of it. Yeah. That's so crazy. That's also another topic we could talk about for an hour. (laughs) We'll have to have you come back on. Yeah. Even knows. I mean, half my friends probably don't even know I worked on wall street. So I just think it's so interesting. You're, you're getting all of this out, out of me. (laughs) Yeah. I'm having a good day. (laughs) So I imagine what you thought, because I thought this too, and I have friends who are nurses or, you know, teachers or whatever, where they don't have to wear a suit or anything. And they go, Oh, I'd love to have a job where I get to dress up in a suit every day. And, but then the suits are like, no, I wish I could just wear scrubs every day. <laughs> was that like now, right? No. Yeah. Yes. No. Right. No. Was that part of it? Did you envision I'm going to be in Manhattan? I'm going to be, well, this was before sex in the city. I'm going to be like Carrie Bradshaw in the city. And Oh, I wish because then it would have been like Manolo's and like fabulous, you know, close. I was in that era where we were just past like the bow blouse and the shoulder pads. Um, you know, I right after the eighties, the eighties were still kind of a part of the culture when I first got out of uh, law school in, in 90. So it was, um, yeah, you know, I wore a suit. I remember, cause even when I left wall street and w- went to work for a private firm, um, you know, I was told by the partners that I had to dress older and I had to make myself look more like look older. So I wore glasses instead of wearing my contacts. And I, you know, wore very like, you know, manly suits and all of that because I was young and blonde and that my face had been put together well, apparently. So, um, you know, that became something like people would be, you know, they're like, you got to play that down. Um, so I never got to wear all the, not until I got going with my, you know, my own practice and got good at what I was doing. Then I, then I got to wear the Manolos. Yeah. Good for you. Everybody should have those. They should. So, um, you, what did you do when you left wall street? Well, I did what every adult child does when they quit their job, (laughs) moved in with my parents. (laughs) 
Thank God for them. Yeah, I mean, my poor parents, but they were living in Fairfield County, uh, Connecticut, which was right, it's like right outside of Manhattan. Um, And my lease was up. So I was going to move in with them for just a couple of months and figure out what my next job was going to be. And um, what ended up happening for me is I had always thought I was going to work on Wall Street. So I really had no concept of what I was going to do as a lawyer now. But I had taken the bar in both New York and Connecticut because my parents by that time were living in Connecticut and it's right next door. So I took them both at the same time. So I was licensed to practice in both New York and Connecticut. And so one of someone my dad knew had a law firm. And so they're like, you know, we're a general practice firm. Why don't you come and, you know, work here for a while? And it'll give you and I a chance to try different things. So I went to work for that, that firm thinking it was a temporary thing um, and stayed there for, I became a name partner seven years later and um, took over the matrimonial department at that time and then only left to go start my own law firm um, a couple of years after that. So never left, did leave my parents' house after a couple yeah. of <laughs> I know, I, I remember I had a job that I just absolutely hated And I made a promise to myself, it was late in the year. And I said, if I don't have a job lined up by January 1st, I'm just quitting. I just, I don't care. I'll, I'll figure it out. And I, luckily I did end up finding something, but that was how miserable I was. So I think the fact that you just left without a job kind of is evidence of how, how much you really hated it. I really hated it. Yeah. I mean, the plus side was that I was in a position even just nine months in. The one thing about working on Wall Street right out of law school is I was getting paid well. And because I couldn't do anything, I basically just banked my salary. And when I was traveling, they were literally paying all of my expenses, my food, my rent, my all of those things. So I had some money set aside. So I was, I was, very lucky as a young professional nine months in to be able to have that wherewithal. But I still, you know, that's why I started working at that firm. I wasn't, I think I spent about two weeks, like hanging out at my parents' house, banging my head into a wall going, what do I do now? Plus I didn't have the type of parents who were like, Oh, just take it easy. I'm sure you'll find something someday. My dad was like, um, okay. Yeah. You got a job yet? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my dad, literally on my 16th birthday was the type who said, well, you're 16. That means it's legal for you to work. So you have one week to get a job. Happy birthday. That was no pressure. Yeah. So waitressing there, I, there I went. So that's good experience though. I wish I had worked in food service. I told my stepkids the minute they were 16, we didn't do the same thing and say, go yeah. get a job. But when they started looking, I said, Guys, go get a job where you get tips and you deal with people because that is your, you know, you go work for minimum wage, you're just going to make minimum wage. If you go and make tips, you're going to walk out with money every day. And and they never did it, by the way. They They didn't listen. They never listen. No, no, but I, you know, I was lucky because I got to go from waitressing in high school to bartending in college. And uh, there's no cool, if you're in college, you're, you're cool if you're a bartender. Yes, absolutely. I always wanted to be a bartender, but those shops were hard to get. Yeah, I was lucky. I was like, I was lucky. My, um, was it my sophomore year after the first year with all the accidents and all 
um, I got a job in kind of like the cool campus bar in Ann Arbor as one of the front door bouncers, if you can believe it. <laughs> no, I can't. I was checking IDs um, on people. You know, you had to be um, over eight or over 21 to get into the bar. Or, or you got different stamps. That's what it was. If you were 21, you got a red stamp because you could drink. And if you were under 21, you got a different stamp. Um, but it was owned by a bunch of former Michigan football players. And a bunch of Michigan football players were the actual bouncers. So I had these huge guys like Jumbo Elliott who were actually there, you know, to deal with it. So all I did was check IDs at the door. That sounds fun. I wouldn't do that today. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty popular, I will say that. And then when a bartending job opened up, I, I got to slide into that. Um, and that was sounds, fun. That, that was sounds fun. awesome. I always, sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm going to go back and I'm just going to go do the stuff that I should have done. And that's one of them. And I always go to my friends, would that be weird if I just bartended somewhere? Would people think that was weird? And they're like, yeah, probably you should not tell them you're a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> one of the more fun jobs that I've had. And guess what? If you can bartend, you can go anywhere and make a living or waitress, but bartending is, uh, is more interesting in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's definitely a good people watching kind of job. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you've done a lot. All right. So you leave this law firm. Did you, why did you go ahead and start your own firm? Like, why was that the time for you? You know, there were a lot of things that came into it at that time. I had been, um, you know, one of the senior partners by that time for a few years. I had essentially at that point become the matrimonial, you know, at first I became, I took over the matrimonial um, practice in the firm and then grew it so that I had my own associates. And I was really kind of already running a firm within a firm. My partners did all different other things, but I was the... Family law was my purview, and and it was the money maker. Um, it, it was it was one of the, the the real generators of income for our firm, and our two senior senior partners were getting ready to go into a semi retirement situation. Neither one wanted to work those ridiculous you know law firm hours anymore, so they wanted to move the firm closer to their homes, which was up the line further away from Manhattan. And for family law in the area I was practicing, you know, the the monetary base is closer to New York. So for me to continue to have that active practice, um, it was, I needed to stay in the area where I was and wanted to, that's where my practice was centered. So it just made sense. It wasn't a negative thing at all. They moved and are still both practicing today um, in their individual firms. And I just basically picked up my little in her firm and moved it. Your book. Um, and so how long have you, well, does that firm still exist? Your firm? No, I, I actually ended up referring out all of my clients to others or bringing them with me because what I had done when I also transitioned, that was also right around the same time where I transitioned my personal practice from a litigation focused pra- practice to a non-adversarial approach. Um, mostly mediation, some collaborative, but my associates were the ones who were doing the litigation. And I don't think I need to ask or anybody else who does family law needs to ask why you did that. No, you don't need to. Right. I was, I burned out on family law 
God, less than 10 years into it, but I just didn't know what else to do. And one of the drawbacks of working in a firm where I first learned the trade from an older generation of mentors, my, my senior partners who were both all, all, I mean, across the board, much older than I was. So they only knew a litigation model. It's all they knew how to teach me. Um, and so once I got worn out, I, they, just no one I knew knew how to tell me how to do anything different. It took me a long time to find mediation and to find a better, you know, a better way out for people. Um, That's yeah. funny you said that because I, I know there's a, I call them dinosaurs, the, the older attorneys that, um, you know, usually men that they've got so much trial experience over the course of their careers, their long careers, but it's almost like they don't know how to do anything else. And they, right. They don't, they don't know how it's like a mindset issue too. And you, you find yourself wondering if only two per case, 2% of cases go to trial, how are they doing like five trials a year? How is that possible? They're the 2%. Right. So I, and it's stressful. Oh, so stressful. And so, I mean, it's adversarial, you you know, I'm not, I enjoyed People always say, well, what did, you know, why did you go into litigation? Part of it was that was the only model that was ever given to me to help people through divorce. But the flip of it was I was good at it. I could get into a courtroom. I was quick on my feet. I was organized. I was smart enough to, you know, to be able to take the facts and use the law. I I did a good job for my clients. And for those of us, I think there is for those of us, at least on the litigation side, we there's some element of our character that is competitive. Like we yeah. enjoy that aspect of getting in there and, you know, feeling like we are achieving what we're supposed to do for our clients. But what really becomes apparent in family law, maybe much more so than personal injury or contract or business, is that restructuring a family through litigation is not a win for the people, even if technically they win in a courtroom because it's, it destroys that family unit. And until you've participated in it, like you and I have, I don't think people really understand that. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think they do until it's all over and then it's too late. Exactly. And, and I, I have, we have colleagues who are very good at that just as we are but who still think that that's the way to do it. But again, I think it's just because many just don't know there's another way. Um, yeah, it's, and- it's sort of a, it's sort of a stereotype that's just been perpetuated over time. Yeah. And I, I really would love to see our society start viewing divorce a little differently. I'd like to remove the stigma associated with it because you know, relationships end, marriages end, and it doesn't have to be a scorched earth situation because a relationship ends. Right. It shouldn't be a scorched earth. We've all had relationships that have ended. I don't know too many people who have reached adulthood without having some sort of intimate relationship that didn't work out. Yet when it's a marriage that doesn't work out, that seems to be something that people feel needs to be a different situation than the breakups that we've had in our lives. And it just doesn't be that way. It's not a good or healthy 
way to approach it for anyone involved. And certainly as, as we know, the children. Yeah. So when did you start thinking, uh, you know, about changing this business model you have? Because I, I really want to talk about that because of all my friends and colleagues that are looking to make some changes too. How did yeah, you do that? You know, for me, it, it was, again, I was lucky because I have a lot of control over first in the firm. And then when I opened my own firm as to what I chose to do or didn't choose to do. And that would be the first thing I would say to anyone is, you know, look around at what your practice situation is and see what control you do have over making changes. Um, because, you know, back when I first started practicing 30 years ago, 31 years ago, there, you know, there weren't mediation trainings. It wasn't an accepted part of our practice, et cetera. Now you can take a mediation training online. I'm starting, you know, I'm teaching one in two weeks. Um, I mean, they're done all the time. And so a lot of firms, especially right now, if you want to get out of litigation, dispute resolution is pretty much the only game in town during COVID. You actually have power right now to talk to your higher ups in your firm about why it's a good idea to add alternate you know pathways to divorce to the firm's roster um, at this point in time add online mediation add online collaborative solutions um, add all of these different modalities and be the one in your firm who's there ready to go ahead and take it on or you know i have three colleagues that in the past month have broken off from their large matrimonial firms in Chicago to open their own single attorney offices that are focused on non-adversarial approaches to divorce. I love that because I think as a divorce lawyer, I'm trying to streamline my practice more into mediation. And I think it's hard to wrap my brain around that sometimes, right? Like I get into that mindset of, oh no, but we have to do litigation. What about all those people that will come to us and they want litigation? But it sounds like it can be done. Well, it absolutely can be done. And the, the reality is those people who are coming to you wanting litigation, the vast majority of them do not even know there's a different way to do it. And so part of what we can be doing is giving them options people do well with options and explaining to them, yes, we can litigate your case, understand if we're litigating it, what we're really probably going to do is actually negotiate a settlement. And there are different ways that we can do that for you. Here's some options, collaborative, mediation, mediation with attorneys, you know, there's all these different um, formats for it, all that are far afield of litigation. Uh, but your average person still, although it's be, it's getting better known and, you know, having now practiced in California where it's much better known, um, I do think, and with COVID, it's going to be continue to grow as, as a resource for practitioners. The thing that holds attorneys back, in, in my personal experience anyway, is that we have a very hard time letting the litigation go because it's the cash because yeah. it's what we know is going to pay the bills. And there's a, there's a fee, I, I can't, if I had a dollar for every attorney who told me, well, I have to take litigation cases or I can't pay the overhead. Um, that, you know, what, the way I solved that was I hired associates to handle the litigation and I didn't touch it. I oversaw it, but I personally got out of doing litigation and I would only take the mediations. There's 
there find a way to make it work for you, but also realize it's a different business model if you're a practitioner, you know, a mediation practitioner than it is if it's a litigation. Litigation is all generated by really high billables and getting your hours in. And mediation is a volume practice because you yeah. don't spend as much time and you don't charge as high. But I made, when I moved to a mediation practice, especially when I added the online aspect of it, which I did five years ago, my income went up, not down. So you were doing online mediation. Yep. Yeah, I started doing that when I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast back in 2016. I um, started, I had to go online because I wasn't yet licensed in California and all my clients were back in California and New York. So I had to find a way to work with them. So I actually went online back then, loved it. My clients loved it. Um, so much so that a couple of years in, I actually started doing a training program that taught mediators how to do their mediations online, which was, you know, kind of a side gig. No one was that interested. And then COVID hit, right? And it exploded. Yeah. So you were really ahead of the curve. Yeah, way ahead. I was, luck- I was really lucky. Um, and, and the thing I still tell people today, because, um, you know, it just was a purely a luck that I had, you know, gone online already. I saw the benefits of an online practice that go so far beyond social distancing that I was already hooked on it and saw all those advantages. Um, I couldn't get colleagues to consider it. Lawyers especially are resistant to doing things in new ways. We are not minded. Yes. It's like tech for some reason. It's Um, true. Forced unfortunately they coerced through COVID into having to go online. Suddenly I was the hottest thing since sliced bread, right? I mean, everybody wanted to know how I was doing it. So I was just really lucky. Yeah. Well, you've said that throughout this interview that you're lucky, but I know some people that would say there's no such thing as luck. Well, I mean, I, I feel, you know, I, I do think that there was, you know, to be in a place where such a devastating thing was happening within the, for the world. And I managed to fall into a situation where I probably made more money in a year of COVID in this past year than I made in any other year in my career. You have to think there's some luck in that. I mean, I just was to fall into a situation where I was ready to help people. The best part of it, honestly, was being able to help colleagues. People were scared. I mean, if you remember back to what March was like in April when, you know, people suddenly their entire practice disappeared because they couldn't meet with people in their conference room. And I had really, you know, terrified colleagues who were like, what am I going to do? How am I going to feed my family and, you know, keep paying my bills during all of this? Um, Yeah. Well, I think as entrepreneurs, you, you get comfortable with a certain level of uncertainty all the time because you don't have a steady paycheck, you know, where you, you get the same amount every week and no matter what happens, you know, you're getting your check, your business and your livelihood depends on what you're investing in, right. In your business and keeping it efficient. And I think for you seeing opportunities, right. But taking advantage of them. So that's where the luck, what's that saying that luck is, um, a combination of opportunity and preparation or something like that. I'm probably saying it wrong. Well, I, I was, you know, I was lucky, but maybe there's an aspect of, and when the opportunity was there, 
I had the pathways that that allowed me to put you know put myself and my program out there for people to find it. That that's the hardest thing I think for most entrepreneurs is we can have the greatest thing in the world, but how do you let people know that you're there? Um, I had pathways available to me that made that relatively simple and. Um, you know, that's, that was through the ABA, the American Bar Association and my involvement in that organization. So, so you already leveraged your networking, um, I guess, networks, your networks of professionals and um, people that you had already formed relationships with. Yeah. Well, it was one of those situations where I'm in leadership with the ABA. And as soon as COVID hit, some of my colleagues came to me who knew what I did in this online world and said, people are panicking. Can you teach us? Um, Can you do a webinar? And so within literally the first week of COVID, I did a one hour webinar for 3000 people um, in that first week. And then from that, people signed up for my program. Um, I was doing webinars for 500 people at a time, three times a day. Um, It was all around the world. And, um, but it all sort of stemmed from that initial ABA um, and, and they, you know, they have half a million members. So the minute they put out a notice like, hey, we're doing this training for free. If you're a member, come on in and Susan's going to show you how to do this online. It, it got a huge response that I would never have been able to access without that type of an outreach and networking. That's so awesome. Are you still get? has it slowed down at all or are you still getting that level of um, attention? So it slowed down from a basic training to now people want advanced training. People have realized, okay, now I know how to use Zoom to do a train to do a mediation. But now, you know, how do I incorporate more visuals? Because it's such a visual medium. What can I do to make my mediations better? Or how um, what's the psychology of online communication? Um, so I'm doing more and more advanced trainings. And then the thing that I think it's a, a a symptom. I'm not sure that's the right word, but you know, when you go, when you are the person who comes along and helps people to rejuvenate their practice online, when they were so afraid, they, they turn to you and and come back and go, great, you're awesome. What can you teach me? And so that has been the, I've taught over 17,000 individual practitioners how to do their mediations online since COVID started. And a a large number of them have come back and they say, well, Susan, you're really active on social media or you do great marketing or you have podcasts. How do you do that? And so I've started doing trainings and all these other things and consulting on marketing and all that. And so it's just kind of taken over. Um, And even if I wanted to mediate, I just don't have the time. I don't have the time. I'm I'm so busy helping colleagues get their practices going in sort of a new century. Um, in a new way. And is you're so you're basically business coaching. Do you, is it strictly the online mediation stuff that you teach or do you teach people other things? You know, I'm, I am doing right now, a lot of professionals who have gone online during COVID want to stay online. Um, I have a number of clients right now who have taken the opportunity of COVID to move to other places in the country or world where they've wanted to live and work remotely and now they wanna stay there. So I'm helping a large number of of practitioners completely convert into being online practitioners, whether it's a law practice, a law firm, um, a mediation practice, you know, it's branched out now into other fields. 
And when did you close your firm? Did you do that because you were done with law or you mentioned you moved? Was it because yeah, of a move? I, I closed my firm when my husband took a job in California and I was moving across country. Um, I, in my naivete, I thought I would just go to California, get an office, put up a sign and, and, and do what I had always done, which was attract clients, do mediations, everyone, you know, this was going to be great. It might take me a couple of months to get up and going, but I had a little lead time. Well, California, you have to take the bar exam, whether you've been, I've been practicing at that point for 26 years, never had a grievance, never had anything ever. I'm like, oh, how hard can it be? Don't take a bar 30, you know, 28 years after you graduated from law school, let me tell you, or the hardest bar in the country, by the way. Yeah. That was experience never to be repeated. Um, Thankfully, I passed it, but still, um, I got out there and realized I didn't know a single person in the legal field. I didn't know California divorce law. I didn't know, you know, I knew nothing. I didn't, there was no way I was going to start a practice under those conditions. And that's when I started working with people again in Connecticut. And the thing that was eye-opening for me is I took one of Woody Mostyn's trainings, his unbundled training where you could do discrete legal services for people. And so I kind of identified the ones that I could do without having to be physically present. And I opened up a, a website called ctconnecticutfamilylawonline.com. And I launched that and I did a Google ad across the entire state of Connecticut. Cause right, I'm a Connecticut attorney. I didn't have to be confined to Fairfield County. I could do anything in the entire state. And in that very first day I did that Google ad, I booked three mediations online. Wow. They were all cases where one of the people had moved away or one was traveling a lot or they just wanted the convenience of online. And it just exploded. It was the only website doing that only law service that was offering it. I then brought in an associate who was going to work for me Um on the, um, you know, in Connecticut, who would be able to like take paperwork to the courthouse or file motions or do whatever needed to be done. And it just worked out great. And from there, you know, it just grew. So you technically had a law firm, but not a real like brick and mortar kind of place. Exactly. And I was lucky because at that time, I and mean, now you're still talking about five years ago, this online firm concept, yeah. no one was doing it. I got to tell you, like my liability insurance carriers, like, well, don't you have to get your liability insurance in California? I'm like, well, I'm not practicing in California. I'm practicing in Connecticut. And they're like, but you're not in Connecticut. I'm like, no, I'm in California. But guess what? In the world we live in today, you can be in California and practice in Connecticut. And they're like, I don't know. Can you? And I'm like, Yes, you can. That's so, incredible. You really were ahead of your time. You were the innovator. You're, or what, what do they call them now? Disruptor. You were the, a, a disruptor. I think, you, I mean, disruptor is probably the better term for it because if we had not had COVID, it was still something that those of us, that many of our colleagues were, was, were resistant to. I mean, our world has just infinitely changed because of COVID. No one was jumping on the bandwagon with me um, or very few. I mean, I had trained a few hundred people in how to do online practice and, and unbundled practicing and, and that sort of thing. But um, now the world is online. 
we're never going to go back to where people have to be only in person. And in fact, I think we're going to find clients don't want to be in person. They want the convenience. Um, so we have other challenges ahead of us where, you know, things are coming in the pipeline. But technology, the one benefit or one of the benefits of COVID is I, I hope that our profession has seen the advantages that technology can bring to us as practitioners um, and in our lifestyle. Um, you know, being able to work remotely, my the one of the clients I just had a meeting with her earlier today, you know, she's always wanted to live in California and surf and be at the beach, but she is a New York City matrimonial attorney and that's all she knows and that's all she does. And she's been out in California for nine months now, no intention of going back to New York, but doing just as well as she was ever doing. Oh, I love that. I hope you'll introduce me to her. I'd love to talk to her. I will, absolutely. She's fantastic. That is so cool. I know. I thought about that too, that I could, I always wanted to be a snowbird and live in Florida in the winter. And you could now, I could do that now. Yeah. Oh, again, you know, the people who actually took my training before COVID were mostly people who were snowbirds who like lived in the North in the summers, but went down to Florida or Arizona or, uh, you know, for the winters. And they wanted that fluidity of, of living, but still being able to practice. Um, I have a lot of new moms or state, you know, parents who needed more flexibility. People who wanted that convenience were quick to adopt. Uh, but in general, it was a, it was the one-off, not the, the norm. I do think as we go forward, I mean, there's so much more in our pipeline. I mean, one of the advantages of being a disruptor or an innovator is I've gotten to know the other disruptors and innovators in our field and the stuff that's coming. And now that VC capital, venture capital has shifted to the tech market in our fields, you know, virtual reality courtrooms are probably a year away, if that long. Really? where we're all gonna be wearing those goggles, you know, um, you can get them. I got my stepson's virtual reality, like goggles. I think they were 4.99. We're gonna be having those as a normal part of our practice where when we put those on, all of a sudden we're all gonna be sitting at a conference room table doing our mediation or standing in a courtroom talking to the jury. It's gonna be a new world. Um, That's incredible. Wow. What are some of the other things you're seeing in the pipeline? You know, I'm seeing a lot more firms that are putting virtual courtrooms in their office space. One of my friends, um, Randy Kessler, who's out of Kessler and Soleimani in Atlanta, they had signed a lease to double their uh, office space just before COVID hit. And we're like, oh my God, you know, what are we going to do with all that space? And Randy, being the brilliant innovator and, and leading you know, practitioner that he is, they decided to literally put a courtroom, but with all the cameras and screens and microphones and bells and whistles into their space. And they've been up and running with virtual trials for months now, um, where their clients come into their office space. And they're able to have, you know, the arbitrator or the media, I mean, they beam people in from all over. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that where you're seeing these virtual tech suites in firms. That is so cool. I didn't even think of that. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. And what's going to happen is for those of us who are solos or smaller practitioners is you're going to see things like the Regus suites where you would go and rent office space. Well, now they're going to have 
these virtual suites as a part of their, you know, co-working spaces. We're going to see a lot, you know, how they all started adding podcast studios. Well, yeah. now we'll add these virtual suites for virtual meetings and, and proceedings. Well, that's, that's where I am now. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're wonderful. I, I was just about to take space in the, um, one of the co-working spaces here in Chicago, just because I wanted to get out of my house during the day. And I just wanted to go be around people and they've made them so cool and put them in the, you know, they're in the meatpacking district of Chicago. It's, it was a cool spot and then COVID hit. So I didn't do it, but it had a podcast studio. It, it'll have these virtual suites. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why those are going to be very attractive. Um, Cause that's the one thing I think we do miss. I don't know about you, but I miss people. Yeah. Um, so. I, I'm excited about these changes. I've always wondered why, at least in New Jersey, we weren't doing e-filing in family court. Other courts were, but not family. I don't know why. I have no idea. Well, because of the privacy issues, right? That was the that was their excuse. In I don't know. I mean, I tend to think it's because the dinosaurs were running the place and they don't like change. And because a lot of our judges, who you know, they tend to be older, they're later in the careers, and. I think they were a lot of them very resistant to figuring out this technology that they didn't know how to use. And, you know, I, it can be frustrating, but it's not a reason to not use it if it's going to be more efficient. So I think yeah. people are getting acclimated to that now. The judges, I've, I've done a lot of trainings for state court systems through COVID where I've gone in and actually trained judges on doing virtual trials or using Zoom or whatever, not to use Skype. There were some courts, New York was using Skype to do domestic violence restraining orders. It's like, you can't do that guys, it's not secure. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of um, issues along the way, but almost to a person, judges are in love with remote trials and with remote proceedings. Um, they, judges seem to love the technology now that they've been introduced to it. And I do think that thankfully, once this pipeline has opened, I'm really hopeful that it will continue, that innovation is now going to be something we get excited about, like you said, um, and look forward to as opposed to how everyone felt at the beginning of COVID, which was coerced into having to go online. I still get people who reach out to me who are like, I've resisted and I keep hoping we're gonna go back and COVID will be over and we'll go back to in-person, but I guess I have to give up on that now. And it's almost like, you know, they're being forced to go online. And I, I really want people to consider there's so many benefits to it for both our clients and for us. Yeah. A lot of people have a hard time with change. It reminds me of that book, uh, who moved my cheese. Have you read that? God, I remember that. Hem and haw. I forget which one was, which, but you know, one of the mice was... mentioned that book in such a long time. <laughs> That's one of my favorite books. If I, if you haven't read that book, anyone who's listening, it's really short. I know that it was big in sales circles. They would give it to salespeople, but it's such a good book. And you know, it sounds kind of silly because it's about these two mice looking for the cheese, but it's so, it's such a good example of how people really are. And, you know, no, I don't want to spoil the, the book experience, but you know, one, one, my, one mouse is adept at change and the other one is not. And I'll let you figure out which one gets the cheese. <laughs> now that you've said the book, I remember when I read it, it was in that year I was on wall street 
1990. That's so funny because that's, it was my boss um, who gave me that book when I was on Wall Street in that one year that I was there. So that's when that book was popular. I have to read that book again. I know I have it at home. I'm going to read it again because it's really short. So you're, you don't have the online firm anymore. So really what you do now is you do the online mediation training. So you're not doing online mediation yourself anymore, right? I do a few. I do a select few for certain clients. For the most part, um, they are with my training partner. So I mentioned, you know, I got into unbundled um, practice when I went to one of Woody Mostyn's trainings. Well, now Woody is my training partner and we've opened the Mostyn Guthrie Mediation and Collaborative Law Academy um, to do online trainings for professionals. And Woody and I do some trainings together. Uh, or I'm sorry, some mediations together. But honestly, I'm so busy doing everything else that I just don't have the same amount of time. And after 31 years, I'm I'm also being involved in the day-to-day of divorce. I'm tired. So I'm better off not doing, you know, the same level of cases. Well, I've been doing it half the time that you've been doing it and I'm tired. It's tired. It's hard. It's hard to be involved in people in the minutiae of divorce details every day. So right now, my world is more about the broad scope of the message that you can have a positive experience of divorce, that you can have a divorce that moves your family forward in a better way, um, and helping professionals to become professionals that will help people do that. And that's really where my, my life is focused now, my professional life. Well, sounds like you are killing it. You're a disruptor, an innovator. I'm not sure what the difference is. I think I like the idea of being a disruptor better. I like being called a disruptor. <laughs> I like I don't that. Know why. It's true. You are. And um, you're an inspiration to me because I got to figure out how to do what you do. Because you, you and I had talked previously about doing online courses and things like that as a business model. And um, that's something it's become very popular. And I think you have said this to me. Other people have said this to me. There's, there is something that everybody knows that you can teach someone else and they will pay for it. Yep. And they want to know it. They're grateful that you taught them. I mean, I do have my online on-demand courses. My learn to mediate online is now on demand. I have how to start your own podcast how to um, build your own website for a professional, how to use social media, all of those. And people download them every day and they're just there. They're there to help people, Um, you know, and I'm adding to them. I'm also starting for the podcast, a paid membership members only section, um, which I already have, it hasn't launched yet, but I have almost a hundred people signed up for. So, you know, there's, you've been doing this for as long as you've been doing it, you know, things that, that will be helpful to people. It's just figuring out how to deliver them. And do you coach people to help them figure out how to do that? Cause I know you have the online courses, but do you do any personal coaching? Yep. I have a large number of clients who basically just hire me and we brainstorm and then we effectuate the brainstorming. And that's actually the most fun. Um, I love doing that. I'm actually through Mostyn Guthrie going to start a, um, I don't know what to call it, like a, a supervised marketing group where we will get together once a month 
and I'm going to help all of the members brainstorm their marketing plan as they go forward into, you know, an online practice or the changes that they're making. A lot of the people that we train through the academy are tra transitioning from maybe a litigation to mediation practice or from a therapy to a mediation practice or something. And I'm ex super excited about that because I love to sit down with people and talk about what their vision is and then how they can market that, how they can take what they know and put it out there to bring people in who are going to want what they're doing. Um, and it always seems to come together. I have no, I'm not formally trained in marketing, um, but there's something about like thinking of ways that you can reach people that I just love to do. And then I love to see it come to fruition. Well, it sounds like you have that creative brain. I, I think you have to be creative. You, much like we've been talking about the dinosaurs, you can't think that there's just one right way to do things. Yeah. And that's, and you actually have to embrace that there isn't just one way to do things. And that's been a huge part of my, uh, my journey. And I love that you said creative because, you know, something about a legal career is yes. I mean, you could be slightly creative, but what we're really working with is a factual world and a legal structure, right? We're taking the law and we're taking the facts and we're putting the two of them together to make them work for our client's position. Um, it's not a particularly creative um, aspect, whereas marketing and all of the things that I'm getting to do now, podcasting, getting to talk to people, getting to meet new people, coming up with social media posts, making graphics, all those things, there's something oddly cathartic and creative about it. And I enjoy that. I didn't get to do that much in my early career. Yeah. I like doing that too. I, some people will tease me and say, oh, you're only scrolling through Instagram, but I really like, there's sort of an artistic aspect of Instagram that I really like. Yeah, me too. I like putting together those silly little graphics and um, you know, I, my, what I tell everyone is, you know, the best way to get yourself out on social media is to be helpful to others. Uh, I always get from professionals. Well, I don't want to get on social media. It's all, you know, hyping yourself. It's like advertising. And I'm like, you don't approach it from that direction, approach it from, I know things that are going to be helpful to people. I'm going to put them out there in this easily accessible and digestible format for people. So, you know, like one of the things I do is a, a divorce attorney tip of the day, and it's just one discreet thought that's going to be helpful to people going through divorce. But yes, is it also positioning you as, you know, someone who knows? Yes, it is. So it's helping you establish a presence, but it's helpful to people. But you do know, and you should share your expertise. So I think people who think, you know, they're going to come across as being sort of egotistical, posting things about themselves online. Uh, I think that's maybe something they need to work on because I don't think other people are looking at them that way. Right. Yeah. But there's a lot of that going around because I hear a lot of people say that they're uncomfortable putting them videos of themselves online or yeah. just pictures of themselves. Well, generally, especially with my lawyer clients, I mean, they are just, you can just see the shutter go down their spine when I say social media, but you know, Hey, LinkedIn is social media. And I'm sorry, if you're a professional and you're not in LinkedIn, um, you've got to rethink your marketing plan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I even think that about Instagram today, I'm amazed at how many attorneys I know who I'll try to find them on Instagram and they're not there or they have something, but they posted, you know, something six months ago and 
and there's been nothing since then. You really need to be on social media these days. Yeah. I, it, it's just a necessary part. So you might as well embrace it and, and have a little fun with it. Like we are. Um, and there's new platforms coming, you know, in, in that world as well. So it, everything will continue to change, but you have to embrace it if you want to stay, especially if you're going to be an online practitioner. So they're looking for people online. They're yeah. Not- yeah, they are. And as we all age, except you and I, we're not aging, but exactly. the millennials are getting older. So yep. they're going to be your clients and they're all online. They're all on social media. Absolutely. I mean, they are all on social media. They know what they're doing with it, by the way. If you want to look at good accounts, go look, you know, know what you should be doing. Go check out your millennial colleagues' um, accounts because they know what they're doing with it. Um, I learned, by the way, Instagram from my stepdaughter, who's 22 years old. I mean, that's who taught me how to do stories and still continues to keep me in the loop as to the new things that, that are coming down the pike. Well, I think my goddaughter who's seven, I think she knows yes. how to use my cell phone better than I do. She does. She's been using it since she, she doesn't know a world without them. I and know. that's where our clients are as well. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy yeah. to think about. It is. Well, thank you so much for your time. I told you an hour and it's been 90 minutes. So um, I think that's a good sign. (laughs) And I have to say, you got a lot. uh, We talked about a lot of things I haven't talked about in a long time. So that's, it's been interesting. (laughs) Thank you. Well, good. I'm so glad. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I certainly did. And um, there was a lot of good stuff here, I think too, for my colleagues and other people that um, are trying to navigate COVID and run their practices better online. Why don't you tell us where we can find you if we want you for coaching or for the online stuff? You know, all the online stuff of it is available through my learn to mediate online.com website. So that has links to pretty much everything else that I do. Um, but that will also have links to the on-demand trainings. It has a link to Mostyn Guthrie Academy, which has the in, the online but in-person mediations, I guess I'd call it the live online trainings that we do. Um, and then the podcast is divorceandbeyondpod.com. Um, and that membership um, is going to be launched there as well. All right. That's exciting. I can't wait to see it. And I will put links to everything in the show notes for everybody. So you can easily access Susan, find Susan online. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.